Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the River War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The River War, by Winston Churchill, Chapter Fifteen, Part Two. The crest of the ridge was only half a mile away. It was found unoccupied. The rocky mass of Sergum obstructed the view and concealed the great reserve collected around the black flag. But southward, between us and Omdurman, the whole plain was exposed. It was infested with small parties of dervishes, moving about, mounted and on foot, in tens and twenties. Three miles away a broad stream of fugitives, of wounded, and of deserters flowed from the Khalifa's army to the city. The mirages blurred and distorted the picture so that some of the routed Arabs walked in air and some through water, and all were misty and unreal. But the sight was sufficient to excite the fiercest instincts of cavalry. Only the scattered parties in the plain appeared to prevent a glorious pursuit. The signalling officer was set to heliograph back to the Sirdar that the ridge was unoccupied, and that several thousand dervishes could be seen flying into Omdurman. Pending the answer, we waited and looking back northwards, across the front of the Zariba, where the first attack had been stopped, perceived a greyish-white smudge, perhaps a mile long. The glass disclosed details, hundreds of tiny white figures heaped or scattered, dozens hopping, crawling, staggering away, a few horses standing stolidly among the corpses, a few unwounded men dragging off their comrades. The skirmishers among the rocks of Sergum soon began to fire at the regiment, and we sheltered among the mounds of sand, while a couple of troops replied with their carbines. Then the heliograph and the zareba began to talk in flashes of light that opened and shut capriciously. The actual order is important. Advance, said the helio, and clear the left flank, and use every effort to prevent the enemy re-entering Omdurman. That was all, but it was sufficient. In the distance the enemy could be seen re-entering Omdurman in hundreds. There was no room for doubt. They must be stopped, and incidentally these small parties in the plains might be brushed away. We remounted. The ground looked smooth and unbroken, yet it was desirable to reconnoitre. Two patrols were sent out. The small parties of dervishes who were scattered all over the plain and the slopes of the hill— prevented anything less than a squadron moving, except at their peril. The first patrol struck out towards Omdurman, and began to push in between the scattered dervishes, who fired their rifles and showed great excitement. The other patrol, under Lieutenant Grenfell, was sent to see what the ground looked like from further along the ridge and on the lower slopes of Sergum. The riflemen among the rocks turned their fire from the regiment to these nearer objects, the five brown figures cantered over the rough ground, presenting difficult targets, but under continual fire, and disappeared round the spur. However, in two or three minutes they reappeared, the riflemen on the hill making a regular rattle of musketry, amid which the lancers galloped safely back, followed last of all by their officer. He said that the plain looked as safe from the other side of the hill as from where we were. At this moment the other patrol returned. They, too, had had good fortune in their adventurous ride. Their information was exact. They reported that in a shallow and apparently practicable corps, about three-quarters of a mile to the southwest, and between the regiment and the fugitives, 
there was drawn up a formed body of dervishes about one thousand strong. Colonel Martin decided on this information to advance and attack this force, which alone interposed between him and the Arab line of retreat. Then we started. But all this time the enemy had been busy. At the beginning of the battle, the Khalifa had posted a small force of seven hundred men on his extreme right, to prevent his line of retreat to Omdurman being harassed. This detachment was composed entirely of the Hadendoa tribesmen of Osman Digna's flag, and was commanded by one of his subordinate emirs, who selected a suitable position in the shallow corps. As soon as the twenty-first lancers left the Zariba, the dervish scouts on the top of Sergum carried the news to the Khalifa. It was said that the English cavalry were coming to cut him off from Omdurman. Abdullah thereupon determined to strengthen his extreme right, and he immediately ordered four regiments, each five hundred strong, drawn from the force around the black flag and under the emir Ibrahim Khalil, to reinforce the Hadendoa in the corps. While we were waiting for orders on the ridge, these men were hurrying southwards along the depression, and concealed by a spur of Sergum Hill. The Lancer patrol reconnoitred the corps, at the imminent risk of their lives, while it was only occupied by the original seven hundred Hadendoa. Galloping back, they reported that it was held by about one thousand men. Before they reached the regiment, this number was increased to two thousand seven hundred. This, however, we had no means of knowing. The Khalifa, having dispatched his reinforcement, rode on his donkey with a scanty escort nearly half a mile from the black flag towards the corps, in order to watch the event, and in consequence he was within five hundred yards of the scene. As the twenty-first lancers left the ridge, the fire of the Arab riflemen on the hill ceased. We advanced at a walk in mass for about three hundred yards. The scattered parties of dervishes fell back and melted away, and only one straggling line of men in dark blue waited motionless a quarter of a mile to the left front. They were scarcely a hundred strong. The regiment formed into line of squadron columns, and continued at a walk until within three hundred yards of this small body of dervishes. The firing behind the ridges had stopped. There was complete silence, intensified by the recent tumult. Far beyond the thin blue row of dervishes, the fugitives were visible, streaming into Omdurman. And should these few devoted men impede a regiment? Yet it were wiser to examine their position from the other flank before slipping a squadron at them. The heads of the squadrons wheeled slowly to the left, and the lancers, breaking into a trot, began to cross the dervish front in column of troops. Thereupon and with one accord the blue-clad men dropped on their knees, and there burst out a loud crackling fire of musketry. It was hardly possible to miss such a target at such a range. Horses and men fell at once. The only course was plain and welcome to all. The colonel, nearer than his regiment, already saw what lay behind the skirmishers. He ordered, "'Right wheel into line!' to be sounded. The trumpet jerked out a shrill note, heard faintly above the trampling of the horses and the noise of the rifles. On the instant all the sixteen troops swung round and locked up into a long galloping line, and the twenty-first lancers were committed to their first charge in war. Two hundred and fifty yards away the dark blue men were firing madly in a thin film of light blue smoke. Their bullets struck the hard gravel into the air, and the troopers, to shield their faces from the stinging dust, 
bowed their helmets forward like the cuirassiers at Waterloo. The pace was fast and the distance short, yet before it was half covered the whole aspect of the affair changed. A deep crease in the ground, a dry watercourse, a core, appeared where all had seemed smooth level plain, and from it there sprang, with the suddenness of a pantomime effect and a high-pitched yell, a dense white mass of men nearly as long as our front, and about twelve deep. A score of horsemen and a dozen bright flags rose as if by magic from the earth. Eager warriors sprang forward to anticipate the shock. The rest stood firm to meet it. The lancers acknowledged the apparition only by an increase of pace. Each man wanted sufficient momentum to drive through such a solid line. The flank troops, seeing that they overlapped, curved inwards like the horns of a moon. But the whole event was a matter of seconds. The riflemen, firing bravely to the last, were swept head over heels into the corps, and jumping down with them, at full gallop and in the closest order, the British squadron struck the fierce brigade with one loud furious shout. The collision was prodigious. Nearly thirty lancers, men and horses, and at least two hundred Arabs were overthrown. The shock was stunning to both sides, and for perhaps ten wonderful seconds no man heeded his enemy. Terrified horses wedged in the crowd, bruised and shaken men, sprawling in heaps, struggled, dazed and stupid, to their feet, panted, and looked about them. Several fallen lancers had even time to remount. Meanwhile the impetus of the cavalry carried them on. As a rider tears through a bullfinch, the officers forced their way through the press, and as an iron rake might be drawn through a heap of shingle, so the regiment followed. They shattered the dervish array, and their pace reduced to a walk, scrambled out of the corps on the further side, leaving a score of troopers behind them, and dragging on with the charge more than a thousand Arabs. Then, and not till then, the killing began, and thereafter each man saw the world along his lance, under his guard, or through the backside of his pistol, and each had his own strange tale to tell. Stubborn and unshaken infantry hardly ever meet stubborn and unshaken cavalry. Either the infantry run away and are cut down in flight, or they keep their heads and destroy nearly all the horsemen by their musketry. On this occasion two living walls had actually crashed together. The dervishes fought manfully. They tried to hamstring the horses. They fired their rifles, pressing the muzzles into the very bodies of their opponents. They cut reins and stirrup-leathers. They flung their throwing-spears with great dexterity. They tried every device of cool, determined men, practiced in war and familiar with cavalry, and besides, they swung sharp, heavy swords which bit deep. The hand-to-hand -hand fighting on the further side of the corps lasted for perhaps one minute. Then the horses got into their stride again, the pace increased, and the lancers drew out from among their antagonists. Within two minutes of the collision every living man was clear of the dervish mass. All who had fallen were cut at with swords till they stopped quivering, but no artistic mutilations were attempted. Two hundred yards away the regiment halted, rallied, faced about, and in less than five minutes were reformed and ready for a second charge. The men were anxious to cut their way back through their enemies. We were alone together the cavalry regiment, and the dervish brigade. 
the ridge hung like a curtain between us and the army. The general battle was forgotten, as it was unseen. This was a private quarrel. The other might have been a massacre, but here the fight was fair, for we too fought with sword and spear. Indeed the advantage of ground and numbers lay with them. All prepared to settle the debate at once and for ever. But some realization of the cost of our wild ride began to come to those who were responsible. Riderless horses galloped across the plain. Men, clinging to their saddles, lurched helplessly about, covered with blood from perhaps a dozen wounds. Horses, streaming from tremendous gashes, limped and staggered with their riders. In one hundred and twenty seconds five officers, sixty-five men, and one hundred nineteen horses out of fewer than four hundred had been killed or wounded. The dervish line, broken by the charge, began to reform at once. They closed up, shook themselves together, and prepared with constancy and courage for another shock. But on military considerations it was desirable to turn them out of the corps first, and thus deprive them of their vantage ground. The regiment again drawn up, three squadrons in line and the fourth in column, now wheeled to the right, and galloping round the dervish flank, dismounted and opened a heavy fire with their magazine carbines. Under the pressure of this fire, the enemy changed front to meet the new attack, so that both sides were formed at right angles to their original lines. When the dervish change of front was completed, they began to advance against the dismounted men. But the fire was accurate, and there could be little doubt that the moral effect of the charge had been very great, and that these brave enemies were no longer unshaken. Be this as it may, the fact remains that they retreated swiftly, though in good order, towards the ridge of Sergum Hill, where the Khalifa's black flag still waved, and the twenty-first lancers remained in possession of the ground and of their dead. Such is the true and literal account of the charge. But the reader may care to consider a few incidents. Colonel Martin, busy with the direction of his regiment, drew neither sword nor revolver, and rode through the press unarmed and uninjured. Major Kroll Wyndham had his horse shot under him by a dervish who pressed the muzzle of his rifle into its hide before firing. From out of the middle of that savage crowd the officer fought his way on foot, and escaped in safety. Lieutenant Molyneux fell in the corps into the midst of the enemy. In the confusion he disentangled himself from his horse, drew his revolver, and jumped out of the hollow before the dervishes recovered from the impact of the charge. Then they attacked him. He fired at the nearest, and at the moment of firing was slashed across the right wrist by another. The pistol fell from his nerveless hand, and being wounded, dismounted, and disarmed, he turned in the hopes of regaining, by following the line of the charge, his squadron, which was just getting clear. Hard upon his track came the enemy, eager to make an end. Beset on all sides, and thus hotly pursued, the wounded officer perceived a single lancer riding across his path. He called on him for help. Whereupon the trooper, Private Byrne, though already severely wounded by a bullet which had penetrated his right arm, replied without a moment's hesitation, and in a cheery voice, "'All right, sir!' and turning, rode at four dervishes who were about to kill his officer. His wound, which had partly paralyzed his arm, prevented him from grasping his sword, 
and at the first ineffectual blow it fell from his hand, and he received another wound from a spear in the chest. But his solitary charge had checked the pursuing dervishes. Lieutenant Molyneux regained his squadron alive, and the trooper, seeing that his object was attained, galloped away, reeling in his saddle. Arrived at his troop, his desperate condition was noticed, and he was told to fall out. But this he refused to do, urging that he was entitled to remain on duty and have another go at them. At length he was compelled to leave the field, fainting from loss of blood. Lieutenant Nesham had an even more extraordinary escape than Molyneux. He had scrambled out of the corps when, as his horse was nearly stopping, an Arab seized his bridle. He struck at the man with his sword, but did not prevent him cutting his off-rein. The officer's bridle-hand, unexpectedly released, flew out, and as it did so, a swordsman at a single stroke nearly severed it from his body. Then they cut at him from all sides. One blow sheared through his helmet and grazed his head. Another inflicted a deep wound in his right leg. A third, intercepted by his shoulder-chains, paralyzed his right arm. Two more, missing him narrowly, cut right through the cantle of the saddle and into the horse's back. The wounded subaltern, he was the youngest of all, reeled. A man on either side seized his legs to pull him to the ground, but the long spurs stuck into the horse's flanks, and the maddened animal, throwing up its head and springing forward, broke away from the crowd of foes, and carried the rider, bleeding, fainting, but still alive, to safety among the rallying squadrons. Lieutenant Nesham's experience was that of the men who were killed, only that he escaped to describe it. The wounded were sent with a small escort towards the river and hospitals. An officer was dispatched with the news to the Sirdar, and on the instant both cannonade and fusillade broke out again behind the ridge, and grew in a crashing crescendo until the whole landscape seemed to vibrate with the sound of explosions. The second phase of the battle had begun. Even before the twenty-first lancers had reconnoitred Sergum Ridge, the Sirdar had set his brigades in motion towards Omdurman. He was determined, even at a very great risk, to occupy the city while it was empty and before the army in the plain could return to defend it. The advantage might be tremendous. Nevertheless, the movement was premature. The Khalifa still remained undefeated west of Sergum Hill. Ali Wad Helu lurked behind Kareri. Osman was rapidly reforming. There were still at least thirty-five thousand men on the field. Nor, as the event proved, was it possible to enter Omdurman until they had been beaten. As soon as the infantry had replenished their ammunition, they wheeled to the left in echelon of brigades, and began to march towards Sergum Ridge. The movements of a great force are slow. It was not desirable that the British division, which led the echelon, should remain in the low ground north of Sergum, where they were commanded, had no field of fire, and could see nothing, and accordingly both these brigades moved forward almost together to occupy the crest of the ridge. Thus two steps of the latter were run into one, and Maxwell's brigade, which followed Wachope's, was six hundred yards further south than it would have been had the regular echelon been observed. In the Zariba, MacDonald had been next to Maxwell, but a very significant change in the order was now made. 
General Hunter evidently conceived the rear of the echelon threatened from the direction of Kareri. Had the earth swallowed all the thousands who had moved across the plain towards the hills? At any rate, he would have his best brigade and his most experienced general in the post of possible danger. He therefore ordered Lewis's brigade to follow Maxwell, and left MacDonald, last of all, strengthening him with three batteries of artillery and eight Maxim guns. Collinson marched with the transport. MacDonald moved out westward into the desert to take his place in the echelon, and also to allow Lewis to pass him, as ordered. Lewis hurried on after Maxwell, and, taking his distance from him, was thus also six hundred yards further south than the regular echelon admitted. The step which had been absorbed when both British brigades moved off, advisedly, together, caused a double gap between MacDonald and the rest of the army. And this distance was further increased by the fact that while he was moving west, to assume his place in correct echelon, the other five brigades were drawing off to the southward, hence MacDonald's isolation. At 9.15 the whole army was marching south in echelon, with the rear brigade at rather more than double distance. Collinson had already started with the transport, but the field hospitals still remained in the deserted Zariba, busily packing up. The medical staff had about 150 wounded on their hands. The Sirdar's orders had been that these were to be placed on the hospital barges, and that the field hospitals were to follow the transport. But the moving of wounded men is a painful and delicate affair, and by a stupid and grievous mistake the three regular hospital barges, duly prepared for the reception of the wounded, had been towed across to the right bank. It was necessary to use three ammunition barges, which, although in no way arranged for the reception of wounded, were luckily at hand. Meanwhile time was passing, and the doctors, who worked with devoted energy, became suddenly aware that, with the exception of a few detachments from the British division and three Egyptian companies, there were no troops within half a mile, and none between them and the dark Kareri hills. The two gunboats which could have guarded them from the river were downstream, helping the cavalry. MacDonald with the rear brigade was out in the plain, Collinson was hurrying along the bank with his transport. They were alone and unprotected. The army and the river together formed a huge V pointing south. The northern extremity, the gorge of the Redan, as it were, gaped open towards Kareri, and from Kareri there now began to come, like the first warning drops before a storm of rain, small straggling parties of dervish cavalry. The interior of the V was soon actually invaded by these predatory patrols, and one troop of perhaps a score of Bagara horse watered their ponies within three hundred yards of the unprotected hospitals. Behind, in the distance, the banners of an army began to reappear. The situation was alarming. The wounded were bundled on to the barges, although, since there was no steamer to tow them, they were scarcely any safer when embarked. While some of the medical officers were thus busied, Colonel Sloggett galloped off, and running the gauntlet of the Bagara horsemen, hurried to claim protection for the hospitals and their helpless occupants. In the midst of this excitement and confusion, the wounded from the cavalry charge began to trickle in. When the British division had moved out of the Zariba, a few skirmishes along the crags of Sergum Hill alone suggested the presence of an enemy. 
each brigade, formed in four parallel columns of route, which closed in until they were scarcely forty paces apart, and both at deploying interval, the second brigade nearer the river, the first almost in line with it and on its right, hurried on, eager to see what lay beyond the ridge. All was quiet, except for a few sniping shots from the top of Sergum. But gradually as Maxwell's brigade, the third in the echelon, approached the hill, these shots became more numerous, until the summit of the peak was spotted with smoke-puffs. The British division moved on steadily, and, leaving these bold skirmishers to the Sudanese, soon reached the crest of the ridge. At once, and for the first time, the whole panorama of Omdurman, the brown and battered dome of the Mahdi's tomb, the multitude of mud-houses, the glittering fork of water which marked the confluence of the rivers, burst on their vision. For a moment they stared entranced. Then their attention was distracted, for trotting, galloping, or halting and gazing stupidly about them, terrified and bewildered, a dozen riderless troop-horses appeared over the further crest, for the ridge was flat-topped, coming from the plain as yet invisible below. It was the first news of the Lancer's charge. Details soon followed in the shape of the wounded, who in twos and threes began to make their way between the battalions, all covered with blood and many displaying most terrible injuries, faces cut to rags, bowels protruding, fish-hook spears still stuck in their bodies, realistic pictures from the darker side of war. Thus absorbed, the soldiers hardly noticed the growing musketry fire from the peak, but suddenly the bang of a field-gun set all eyes looking backward. A battery had unlimbered in the plain between the zareba and the ridge, and was beginning to shell the summit of the hill. The report of the guns seemed to be the signal for the whole battle to reopen. From far away to the right rear there came the sound of loud and continuous infantry firing, and immediately Gatacre halted his division. Almost before the British had topped the crest of the ridge, before the battery had opened from the plain, while Colonel Sloggett was still spurring across the dangerous ground between the river and the army, the Sirdar knew that his enemy was again upon him. Looking back from the slopes of Sergum, he saw that MacDonald, instead of continuing his march in echelon, had halted and deployed. The veteran brigadier had seen the dervish formations on the ridge to the west of Sergum, realized that he was about to be attacked, and, resolving to anticipate the enemy, immediately brought his three batteries into action at twelve hundred yards. Five minutes later the whole of the Khalifa's reserve, fifteen thousand strong, led by Yakub with a black flag, the bodyguard and all the glories of the Dervish Empire, surged into view from behind the hill, and advanced on the solitary brigade with the vigour of the first attack, and thrice its chances of success. Thereupon Sir Herbert Kitchener ordered Maxwell to change front to the right, and storm Sergum Hill. He sent Major Sandback to tell Lewis to conform and come into line on Maxwell's right. He galloped himself to the British division, conveniently halted by General Gadacre on the northern crest of the ridge, and ordered Littleton with the second brigade to form facing west on Maxwell's left, south of Sergum and watch up with the first brigade to hurry back to fill the wide gap between Lewis and MacDonald. Last of all he sent an officer to Collinson and the Camel Corps, with orders that they should swing round to their right rear, 
and closed the open part of the V. By these movements the army, instead of facing south in echelon, with its left on the river and its right in the desert, was made to face west in line, with its left in the desert and its right reaching back to the river. It had turned nearly a complete somersault. In obedience to these orders, Littleton's brigade brought up their left shoulders, deployed into line, and advanced west. Maxwell's Sudanese scrambled up the Sergam rocks, and in spite of a sharp fire, cleared the peak with the bayonet, and pressed on down the further side. Lewis began to come into action on Maxwell's right. MacDonald, against whom the Khalifa's attack was at first entirely directed, remained facing southwest, and was soon shrouded in the smoke of his own musketry and artillery fire. The three brigades which were now moving west and away from the Nile attacked the right flank of the dervishes assailing MacDonald, and, compelling them to form front towards the river, undoubtedly took much of the weight of the attack off the isolated brigade. There remained the gap between Lewis and MacDonald, but Wachope's brigade, now in four parallel columns of route, had shouldered completely round to the north, and was now doubling swiftly across the plain to fill the unguarded space. With the exception of Wachope's brigade and of Collinson's Egyptians, the whole infantry and artillery force were at once furiously engaged. The firing became again tremendous, and the sound was even louder than during the attack on the Zariba. As each fresh battalion was brought into line, the tumult steadily increased. The three leading brigades continued to advance westward in one long line, looped up over Sergam Hill, and with the right battalion held back in column. As the forces gradually drew nearer, the possibility of the dervishes penetrating the gap between Lewis and MacDonald presented itself, and the flank battalion was wheeled into line so as to protect the right flank. The aspect of the dervish attack was at this moment most formidable. Enormous masses of men were hurrying towards the smoke-clouds that almost hid MacDonald. Other masses turned to meet the attack which was developing on their right. Within the angle formed by the three brigades facing west, and MacDonald facing nearly south, a great army of not fewer than fifteen thousand men was enclosed, like a flock of sheep in a fold, by the thin brown lines of the British and Egyptian brigades. As the seventh Egyptians, the right battalion of Lewis's brigade, and nearest the gap between that unit and MacDonald, deployed to protect the flank, they became unsteady, began to bunch and waver, and actually made several retrograde movements. There was a moment of danger. But General Hunter, who was on the spot, himself ordered the two reserve companies of the 15th Egyptians, under Major Hickman, to march up behind them with fixed bayonets. Their morale was thus restored, and the peril averted. The advance of the three brigades continued. Yakub found himself utterly unable to withstand the attack from the river. His own attack on MacDonald languished. The musketry was producing terrible losses in his crowded ranks. The valiant Wad Bishara and many other less famous emirs fell dead. Gradually he began to give ground. It was evident that the civilized troops were the stronger. But even before the attack was repulsed, the Khalifa, who watched from a close position, must have known that the day was lost, for when he launched Yakub at MacDonald, 
it was clear that the only chance of success depended on Ali Wad Helu and Osman Sheikh Ed-Din attacking at the same side from Kareri. And with bitter rage and mortification, he perceived that, although the banners were now gathering under the Kareri hills, Ali and Osman were too late, and the attacks which should have been simultaneous would only be consecutive. The effect of Broadwood's cavalry action upon the extreme right was now becoming apparent. Regrets and fury were alike futile. The three brigades advancing drove the Khalifa's dervishes back into the desert. Along a mile of front an intense and destructive fire flared and crackled. The 32nd British Field Battery on the extreme left was drawn by its hardy mules at full gallop into action. The Maxim guns pulsated feverishly. Two were even dragged by the enterprise of a subaltern to the very summit of Sergum, and from this elevated position intervened with bloody effect. Thus the long line moved forward in irresistible strength. In the centre, under the red Egyptian flag, careless of the bullets which that conspicuous emblem drew, and which inflicted some loss among those around him, rode the Sirdar, stern and sullen, equally unmoved by fear or enthusiasm. A mile away to the rear the gunboats, irritated that the fight was passing beyond their reach, steamed restlessly up and down, like caged polar bears seeking what they might devour. Before that terrible line the Khalifa's division began to break up. The whole ground was strewn with dead and wounded, among whose bodies the soldiers picked their steps with the customary Sudan precautions. Surviving thousands struggled away towards Omdurman, and swelled the broad stream of fugitives upon whose flank the twenty-first lancers already hung vengefully. Yakub and the defenders of the black flag disdained to fly, and perished where they stood, beneath the holy ensign, so that when their conquerors reached the spot the dark folds of the banner waved only over the dead. While all this was taking place, for events were moving at speed, the 1st British Brigade was still doubling across the rear of Maxwell and Lewis to fill the gap between the latter and MacDonald. As they had wheeled round, the regiments gained on each other according to their proximity to the pivot flank. The brigade assumed a formation which may be described as an echelon of columns of route, with the Lincolns, who were actually the pivot regiment, leading. By the time that the right of Lewis's brigade was reached, and the British had begun to deploy, it was evident that the Khalifa's attack was broken, and that his force was in full retreat. In the rear foreground the Arab dead lay thick. Crowds of fugitives were trooping off in the distance. The black flag alone waved defiantly over the corpses of its defenders. In the front of the brigade the fight was over but those who looked away to the right saw a different spectacle. What appeared to be an entirely new army was coming down from the Kareri hills. While the soldiers looked and wondered, fresh orders arrived. A mounted officer galloped up. There was a report that terrible events were happening in the dust and smoke to the northward. The spearmen had closed with MacDonald's brigade, were crumpling his line from the flank, had already broken it. Such were the rumours. The orders were more precise. The nearest regiment, the Lincolnshire, was to hurry to MacDonald's threatened flank to meet the attack. The rest of the brigade was to change front half-right, and remain in support. 
the Lincolnshires, breathless but elated, forthwith started off again at the double. They began to traverse the rear of MacDonald's brigade, only dimly conscious of rapid movements by its battalions, and to the sound of tremendous independent firing, which did not, however, prevent them from hearing the venomous hiss of bullets. Had the Khalifa's attack been simultaneous with that which was now developed, the position of MacDonald's brigade must have been almost hopeless. In the actual event it was one of extreme peril. The attack in his front was weakening every minute, but the far more formidable attack on his right rear grew stronger and nearer in inverse ratio. Both attacks must be met. The moment was critical, the danger near. All depended on MacDonald, and that officer, who by valour and conduct in war had won his way from the rank of a private soldier to the command of a brigade, and will doubtless obtain still higher employment, was equal to the emergency. To meet the Khalifa's attack, he had arranged his force facing southwest, with three battalions in line, and the fourth held back in a column of companies in rear of the right flank, an inverted L-shaped formation. As the attack from the southwest gradually weakened, and the attack from the northwest continually increased, he broke off his battalions and batteries from the longer side of the L, and transferred them to the shorter. He timed these movements so accurately that each face of his brigade was able to exactly sustain the attacks of the enemy. As soon as the Khalifa's force began to waver, he ordered the eleventh Sudanese and a battery on his left to move across the angle to which the brigade was formed, and deploy along the shorter face to meet the impending onslaught of Ali Wad Halu. Perceiving this, the ninth Sudanese, who were the regiment in column on the right of the original front, wheeled to the right from column into line without waiting for orders, so that two battalions faced towards the Khalifa and two towards the fresh attack. By this time it was clear that the Khalifa was practically repulsed, and MacDonald ordered the 10th Sudanese and another battery to change front and prolong the line of the 9th and 11th. He then moved the 2nd Egyptians diagonally to their right front, so as to close the gap at the angle between their line and that of the three other battalions. These difficult manoeuvres were carried out under a heavy fire, which in twenty minutes caused over one hundred twenty casualties in the four battalions, exclusive of the losses in the artillery batteries, and in the face of the determined attacks of an enemy who outnumbered the troops by seven to one, and had only to close with them to be victorious. Amid the roar of the firing and the dust, smoke, and confusion of the change of front, the general found time to summon the officers of the Ninth Sudanese around him, rebuking them for having wheeled into line in anticipation of his order, and requested them to drill more steadily in brigade. The three Sudanese battalions were now confronted with the whole fury of the dervish attack from Kareri. The bravery of the blacks was no less conspicuous than the wildness of their musketry. They evinced an extraordinary excitement, firing their rifles without any attempt to sight or aim, and only anxious to pull the trigger, reload, and pull it again. In vain the British officers strove to calm their impulsive soldiers. In vain they called upon them by name, or, taking their rifles from them, adjusted the sights themselves. 
the independent firing was utterly beyond control. Soon the ammunition began to be exhausted, and the soldiers turned round, clamouring for more cartridges, which their officers doled out to them by twos and threes, in the hopes of steadying them. It was useless. They fired them all off and clamoured for more. Meanwhile, although suffering fearfully from the close and accurate fire of the three artillery batteries and eight Maxim guns, and to a less extent from the random firing of the Sudanese, the dervishes drew nearer in thousands, and it seemed certain that there would be an actual collision. The valiant blacks prepared themselves with delight to meet the shock, notwithstanding the overwhelming numbers of the enemy. Scarcely three rounds per man remained throughout the brigade. The batteries opened a rapid fire of case shot. Still the dervishes advanced, and the survivors of their first wave of assault were scarcely one hundred yards away. Behind them both green flags pressed forward over enormous masses of armed humanity, rolling on, as they now believed, to victory. At this moment the Lincoln Regiment began to come up. As soon as the leading company cleared the right of MacDonald's brigade, they formed line, and opened an independent fire obliquely across the front of the Sudanese. Groups of dervishes in twos and threes were then within one hundred yards. The great masses were within three hundred yards. The independent firing lasted two minutes, during which the whole regiment deployed. Its effect was to clear away the leading groups of Arabs. The deployment, having been accomplished with the loss of a dozen men, including Colonel Sloggett, who fell shot through the breast while attending to the wounded, section volleys were ordered. With excellent discipline the independent firing was instantly stopped, and the battalion began with machine-like regularity to carry out the principles of modern musketry, for which their training had efficiently prepared them, and their rifles were admirably suited. They fired on an average sixty rounds per man, and finally repulsed the attack. The dervishes were weak in cavalry, and had scarcely two thousand horsemen on the field. About four hundred of these, mostly the personal retainers of the various emirs, were formed into an irregular regiment and attached to the flag of Ali Wad Helu. Now when these horsemen perceived that there was no more hope of victory, they arranged themselves in a solid mass and charged the left of MacDonald's brigade. The distance was about five hundred yards, and, wild as was the firing of the Sudanese, it was evident that they could not possibly succeed. Nevertheless, many carrying no weapon in their hands, and all urging their horses to their utmost speed, they rode unflinchingly to certain death. All were killed and fell as they entered the zone of fire. Three, twenty, fifty, two hundred, sixty, thirty, five and one out beyond them all, a brown smear across the sandy plain. A few riderless horses alone broke through the ranks of the infantry. After the failure of the attack from Kareri, the whole Anglo-Egyptian army advanced westward, in a line of bayonets and artillery nearly two miles long, and drove the dervishes before them into the desert, so that they could by no means rally or reform. The Egyptian cavalry, who had returned along the river, formed line on the right of the infantry in readiness to pursue. At half-past eleven Sir H. Kitchener shut up his glasses, and, remarking that he thought the enemy had been given a good dusting, 
gave the order for the brigades to resume their interrupted march on Omdurman. A movement which was possible, now that the forces in the plain were beaten. The brigadiers thereupon stopped the firing, massed their commands in convenient formations, and turned again towards the south and the city. The Lincolnshire Regiment remained detached as a rear-guard. Meanwhile the great Dervish army, who had advanced at sunrise in hope and courage, fled in utter rout, pursued by the Egyptian cavalry, harried by the twenty-first lancers, and leaving more than nine thousand warriors dead, and even greater numbers wounded behind them. Thus ended the Battle of Omdurman, the most signal triumph ever gained by the arms of science over barbarians. Within the space of five hours, the strongest and best-armed savage army yet arrayed against a modern European power had been destroyed and dispersed, with hardly any difficulty, comparatively small risk, and insignificant loss to the victors. End of chapter 15